Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Annabelle McRae. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. The U.S. Capitol insurrection of January 6, 2021, materialized years of warnings that America's democracy is approaching a critical juncture that could spiral into violent insurgency and even civil war. Canadians like to portray our national fabric as immune to the same fate. However, the recent Freedom Convoy protests and the emergence of Western Canada's Maverick Party demonstrate that our union of provinces faces similar threats. In this episode, We explore the strength of democracy and the rise of the radical right in Canada alongside Hillary Lawson and the risk of civil war in the USA with Professor Thad Kauser. We identify the origins of frustration with governance systems that have proven resilient for centuries. How might these risks be alleviated while building a society that is just and equitable for all? For this segment on democracy in the United States, we are joined by Professor Thad Kauser, who is chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, having joined the department in 2003. He studies American state and national politics, voting reforms, direct democracy, and how politicians use social media. Professor Kauser, thank you very much for joining me today and welcome to Be on the Headlines. Thanks for having me. So the first question I'd like to ask is a general one. Uh, What ingredients make a strong democracy? America's democracy throughout its history has been both strong, but, but incomplete. And so I think there are, that shows examples of, uh, you know, of both resilient institutions, right? So we have clearly delineated institutions in a constitution. Uh, We have the, you know, the, the, part of the brilliance of the framing of the American constitution is that it uses ambition to check ambition. And so we have uh, different elements of of our government are all uh, all working to keep the others in check, right? And that that protects against uh, overwhelming power on one side or by one institution. So you have a Congress checking a president, you have the court checking both of them, you have states checking the federal government. And and in all of this, you have parties that are are playing this role of, of of keeping each other from consolidating too much power in in the way that that some democracies fail, where you know one side take things over. So that's so that's one element, and that's an element where the United States has been strong and, and resilient in its institutions, right? But there's another side of democracy, which is about who's included in it, and you know, and that's where America has been has most obviously failed in in, in most of its uh, in, in much of its time period. You know, sort of excluding excluding women, excluding Black Americans, uh, excluding uh, people, you know, so there were poll taxes that made it harder for, for poor white Americans to vote in the South, that a, a, an inclusive uh, electorate 
right? That, that brings the people who are governed into the government-making, into the decisions that, that govern themselves. That's another part of an important formula for a strong democracy. And then I think finally, having really clear bounds between the military and the government uh, is, is, is another thing that if you look at where democracies have faltered across the world, coups have played a large role in that the United States um, you know, for, for all of the, the, the fragility of certain parts of American democracy, we don't have that tradition. We have a very, you know, a very sort of strong norm that's strongly ingrained as in part of every military training about the, you know, about generals are not political and, and we haven't had uh, any of the, the threats that you've seen in, in some nations. So, so I'd say those three things, right? strong, resilient institutions that check one another, strong differentiation between military and state, and then an inclusive electorate. We all know that the 2020 presidential election was heavily contested and continues to be contested, unfortunately, by the Republicans. And moreover, in 2021, I read that there's a Swedish-based International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. Uh, they added the United States to the list of backsliding democracies. Uh, would you agree that the United States is currently accurately uh, considered as a as a backsliding democracy and why or why not? Well, the idea of a backsliding democracy is that without becoming something other than a democracy, uh, you can have retrenchment on, on, on some of those elements. So let's go back to, to those elements and see and see what they are, right? So, so one is having an inclusive electorate. Uh, and, and so that's something that I think is of, you know, of, of pretty large concern to, to a lot of people in the voting rights community. So there's a, there's a group called the Voting Rights Lab that, that monitors legislation across the states. They're, they're tracking about 2,500 bills. Five of them would add and expand the electorate. So we see, uh, you know, we see states that are, that are looking at things like uh, continuing allowing people uh, and during an ongoing pandemic to, to vote by mail, which is all we know, as, as we know, is, you know, a, a, you know, a safe and, you know, something that people have been doing in both parties in California since the 1970s, right? Uh, you have proposals to, to allow, um, to allow, you know, to make voter registration, which has always been the big obstacle, the big thing that makes us different from other nations and helps contribute to our relatively low rates of electoral participation. You see expansions there. But you see, on the other hand, a thousand bills, right, at the state level that would, uh, in, in the view of Voting Rights Act, in the Voting Rights Act, Voting Rights Lab that would stand in the way of, of voting rights and stand in the way of protecting uh, democracy and, and expanding that electorate. So uh, looking at things like like voter ID provisions, uh, making it harder for people to vote on say this, you know, the weekend before the election, early voting has been part of what's um, led to, to large turnout in, 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 in several recent elections, making it harder for people to vote by mail, making it harder for people to, uh, to have witnesses um, you know, re requiring everyone to have witnesses every time they, they want to vote uh, by mail, those sorts of differences, right, which can be chipped away at incrementally in state after state could move the United States into a less expansive electorate. If that's the case, you know, this doesn't mean American America becomes a non-democracy immediately, but it's the sort of incremental ebb and flow that we've seen throughout American history. We've seen progress on some of these issues, and we've seen movement back on some of those issues, and we may be moving towards uh, towards a time of, of constriction of the electorate uh, that would be character characterized as democratic backsliding. You mentioned something interesting because in Canada, you might be familiar, we have a, a centralized independent body 
that oversees the entire election, Elections Canada, everywhere in Canada where you go to vote, you get the same experience. Whereas I understand in the United States, it's very different where each state has a lot of control over how their elections are administered. Mm-hmm. So how, how do we explain why the system in the United States is so decentralized? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is it just you know, a different way of doing things? This struggle uh, between states' rights and the federal government has been the ongoing and yet has yet unresolved struggle of, of American history. It, it sort of defines the, the biggest points in our country from, from our original constitution to its civil war, to the civil rights movement, to, to every part of the election today. So it, uh, it, it on election administration, right, it leads to a patchwork of policies where you might be able to, uh, you know, register at the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles in California, mail in your ballot, be, have an app where you track your ballot uh, and, and do all of those things. And then in another state uh, like Texas, you may have to be over 65 in order to cast a vote by mail ballot. You may have, um, you may have ballots uh, invalidated, you know, that due to errors that in a way that disproportionately affects black communities as we saw in the, in the, in the primary in Texas. So really different uh, things in every state. Um, on the one hand, that might just seem crazy. Right. But there are ways in which, but there are also advantages to that system. So what, what, how did the United States pull off this incredible trick of having a free and fair election during a pandemic between two deeply polarized sides that was nail bitingly close and, and make it through? Well, part of that was the federal system. So you had like Republican elected officials uh, in, in, the, in, in states like Nevada where the, sec- the Republican elected secretary of state was pushing for, uh, allowed voting by mail during a pandemic, even though President Trump was campaigning against it. You had the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger in, in Georgia, uh, saying no to the most powerful person in the world, Donald Trump, when he called him and, and, and said, could he find 11,000 votes, right? And if we had had a unified federal system of running elections, it wouldn't have been, inf- it wouldn't have been as insulated from, from partisan manipulation as our federal system was. So, so there, are, there are some positives as well as, as, as the potential negatives of this approach. Yeah, on, on that note as well, something my, my colleagues and I have been reading about is that many of the election administrators who faithfully reported their results in the 2020 election, like you mentioned, uh, have now been targeted for replacement by, by the Republicans and replaced with loyalists to the former president. Uh, so how serious of a threat could this be for American democracy? And is the outcome of the 2024 election in jeopardy? Or do you think that even if the 2024 election is close, this decentralized system, there's still enough insulation there to protect the true result. Yeah, so I think that is the most serious and significant challenge for American democracy right now. So as in, this is what, uh, what, what you know, the, the, the leading expert on elections law in America, Rick Kasson, has called electoral manipulation. So, so this a set of uh, of initiatives that have put in place to to allow uh, legislatures, 
to overturn uh, what election officials uh, have have reported and and sought, decide on a slate of, of electors to our electors to our electoral college, uh, that that is a huge threat, right? There, there uh, and 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 if you go all down the line, there's there's a set of laws that make um, that make it really easy to to. D- disrupt the the vote count that these election officials are are, are taking part in um, you don't have we haven't seen the increased funding that these local election officials need to to carry out elections during these these ever more partisan times uh, and 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 so that and you've also just seen a huge lack a huge drop in morale from these election officials who did their job did it incredibly well and were repaid by by death threats death threats to their family you know we saw that in Georgia and and it's you know it's a terrible time to 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 keep uh people at the time that we most need you know these these experienced professionals in in these offices so i think that's the biggest concern there there are things that we could do to address it there's some possibilities uh, of bipartisan agreement uh, in congress on on revisions to what's called the electoral count act which makes which is an old law from 1887 that that would make that, that if it's that were potentially used as a way to to disrupt this election and and quick action by Congress could make that harder and and make it more likely that accurate votes uh, will result will determine the accurately counted votes and reported votes will, will determine the winner in the next election. So what what would happen in your mind if the outcome of the 2024 election wasn't fair? Like, let's say there's been enough uh, replacement of these these officials that actually you know, a free and fair election is able to be overturned by one side or the other. Uh, what, what happens then? Do we see an increasing amount of political violence or will America, you know, slowly resolve the situation as it seems to have done in the past? Well, so, so let's be clear about which side that the threats are coming from, right? So, so, that, so, so Democrats are not uh, putting in place uh, a set of rules that would make it possible to overturn uh, the, the decisions of, of local elected officials. I think we would have to have, in order to, for American democracy to face this potentially you know, almost existential threat, right? The, the situation that you would have to have would be a, a repeat uh, of 2020, like a narrow, a very nail, a nail-bitingly narrow, because this was, <laughs> very close election in 2020, right? Uh, and and it would have to be it would have to be won by Democrats. Um, and then and then the the question would be, you know, what what do we see? So so the 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 election in 2020 was contested. It was contested in the courts. There were you know dozens and dozens of court cases brought, um, and the courts did an ex- exemplary job of this, right? They resolved the cases quickly. Uh, they resolved the cases in a way that didn't fit with the you know the, the the partisanship of the person who had appointed them. So you have many Trump appointed judges who looked at the evidence, didn't see you know any compelling evidence of you know of, of voter fraud that would have led to an overturning of elections, and we dispensed with these cases, right? So so we would have. You know the courts would have the first say in this, um, and and if there were you know if there was electoral manipulation, the courts might play a role in reversing that electoral manipulation. Right, so there would be ways to test um, the system. So I think you know right now, right if the if the if the next presidential election were held today, I wouldn't see any threat to American democracy because it would be an overwhelming victory by Republicans. So, so you need both a close election, you need Republicans to lose in, in the fair count of that election. And then you would need a series of American institutions to fail. 
I'm not saying that can't happen, but but we do have, um, you know, we do have a lot of resilience built into our institutions, and I think we would have, you know, a chance of addressing uh, the, these these potential doomsday scenarios. Next, I I like to get to a critical what I think is a critical question. So why do you think we've arrived at this moment in the United States where, with the presidency of Donald Trump, the January 6th Capitol insurrection and attempts to overturn the 2020 election outcome, democratic institutions are increasingly under assault? What explains why broadly why these events are happening? We're at, we've seen ebbs and flows of polarization in American politics. And we've seen ebbs and flows of political violence in American politics. And so I'm not, I don't want to minimize the risks and, and, the, and, the, and the massive problems uh, of America today, but I want to put it in a bit of historical context that explains that we're at points that we, we're at a point that is not incredibly unlike other points that we've seen in American history. Right. So America has had a civil war, but America has also had a fairly high level of violence compared to, to, to other modern democracies throughout its history. So if you look at elections after the Civil War in the South, you saw uh, a thousand people killed in, in, you know, per election and multiple elections, most of them Black Americans. You saw violence both, you know, both uh, in, during the Civil Rights Movement, you saw violence, you know, against Black Americans, events uh, against uh, others who were protesting alongside them, uh, both uh, by state and non-state actors. Um, you see in, we've seen the number of assassinations we've had of heads of state uh, in, in America. I don't know that there's another modern democracy that has had that many assassinations, including incredibly consequential ones that have determined our history. You had huge violence during, uh, during on, the, on behalf of, uh, of labor and those, and those seeking to break unions uh, in, in the 1920s. Um, you had anarchists. So if you look at like, there's some state legislatures, uh, that, the ones that were built in the 20s and 30s that have secret escape hatches behind the governor's offices because they're always worried about the anarchists Taking over, uh, and and there were high levels of violence. You've seen uh, thirty shots fired onto the House floor by semi-automatic weapons uh, in 1954. So you've seen attacks on the Capitol uh, in in American history before, and, and you've seen uh, people trying to use violence to to intimidate and stop others from voting. So we're at a place that we have that that is that is not completely unlike other places that we've been before. Um, and 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 our, our and and key key elements of our democracy have been resilient to those before. So that doesn't mean we're in a good place today, right? So where are why, why are we where we are? One of the places that we are is, is we have you know large huge levels of partisan polarization. You know that that now equal or potentially surpass those in the late eighteen hundreds. So the parties are now lined up on ideological grounds. Um, there are good things about that, right? When you vote for Republican, you know when you're, what you're getting. When you vote for a Democrat, you know what you're getting uh, in, in, from one state to another. That was not the case in the 1970s. Um, you know, divisions are, people get to, divisions are played out uh, in, in the electorates uh, rather than in the legislature. So you don't just vote for a single party and then not know what sorts of policies they'll deliver on key things like civil rights where the Democratic Party was, was, was split hugely on taxes. Um, and so, but, but what that means is that you don't have these cleavages that are massive along ideological lines mean you have very different worldviews 
And I think one of the things that's, that's most disturbing about the last five years is people's views about disagreements on the basic facts of, of American politics. Who won the last election? Uh, what's the best way to treat COVID uh, medically? You know, those things you see massive differences. And this polarization, you know, has, has happened before our eyes in real time to an alarming degree in a way that affects elections. So in the, in the course of 2020, I was part of a team of scholars all across the University of California that did a series of four national polls looking at how people wanted to vote during a pandemic. And at the beginning of this, we asked people about things like voting by mail. Uh, and there was about a five percentage point gap between Democrats and Republicans. This was before Donald Trump made it a partisan issue. Uh, and then over the course of the election, every time we did a new survey, that gap grew larger and larger on whether people wanted to vote by mail, whether they trusted vote by mail, and whether they wanted to allow others to vote by mail. And then when we provided them with information from scientific uh, studies about what the, the, there might be a, a peak in, in COVID cases in the fall. Democrats and independents, when they heard that information, responded to that information, were much more likely to, to back voting by mail. Republicans didn't respond to that. And, and, and so what we saw was sort of about half of, of that growing gap between the parties was accounted for by, by the fact that the Republicans were just sort of, for whatever reasons, not accepting and not or not responsive to the scientific expertise. Uh, so that basic sort of difference in how we view the facts of the world that has caused the partisans and divide and its direct implications for how we want to, elections to work, that I think is, is a, particularly, uh, a particularly worrying trend in American politics today. Turning towards the last the last few questions I have for you. Uh, last week, uh, you mentioned in our correspondence over email, uh, you narrated a discussion with your colleague, Barbara Walter, about her new book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. What Briefly, what were your biggest takeaways from that discussion? So Barbara Walter's book, which has been, uh, you know, which has really led and driven a lot of the discussion because she draws on, on, on her history and expertise uh, uh, looking at civil wars in other countries and then says, here are the conditions that predict civil wars and then, and, and then talks about how and whether they apply to the United States. So, so in short, that, you know, two of the, the two underlying conditions are, so there are democracies and autocracies in the world and in between there's something called an anocracy, right? And this is sort of, in, that's where civil wars happen. In the transition from one way to, to another in, in an incomplete democracy, that's where civil wars are most likely because on the one hand, uh, you don't have the, 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 the robust institutions of a democracy. On the other hand, you don't have the complete control of an autocracy, right? Second risk factor is uh, politics that are aligned along racial and ethnic or religious lines, factionalized politics, rather than politics in which the parties are aligned on ideological lines, right? So that is, is a big risk factor um, that you've seen from other nations. Uh, you know, think, think of, uh, of the, the, you know, the, the Serbian, uh, you know, Serbian Slobodan Milosevic aligning politics along ethnic lines, uh, you know, in, 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 in after Yugoslavia collapsed. Um, and then and then there has to be a triggering events, something like, you know, a, uh, a lost election or a failed protest uh, or, or a natural disaster. Right. So and so, so with those factors, then the question becomes, do they apply to the United States? Right. So there's an argument that, that the United States is now an anocracy, somewhere between a, a democracy. Um, there's there's a rating system called Freedom House that gives uh, uh, you know, scores these things, uh, scores countries from a negative 10 full autocracy to a 10 full democracy. We were a 10 uh, until the 2016 election. We were downgraded step by step by that group to a five. 
Um, and so if you if you buy that, right, we're in the anocracy uh, realm. Um, you know, I, I think that's hugely. I I I have doubts about that. Um, for context, uh, South Africa uh, before during apartheid, like in 1988, was a four. Um, I, you know, I think there are there's certainly problems with American democracy. I think we are better uh, than than South Africa during during apartheid. Uh, but but potentially through change, continued changes in, in institutions and weaken it, we could be put into that anocracy phase. And, and, and I think her expertise in a, in a pattern she's seen across countries would, would be then right that we would be at risk. Second thing is, I think our parties right now are clearly aligned on ideological grounds. The biggest splits between the parties are not their racial and ethnic comp composition. It's how people view the world, what kind of policies they want on issues that range from, from uh, abortion to, uh, to taxes to um, to the, the role of uh, of government overall in, in, in people's lives. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of electoral data that supports that. Second, we had this test, right, of, of this uh, very close election and then the failed protest of January 6th um, during a, a pandemic, which is kind of like a, you know, a natural disaster. So that stressed the system. And so far in 2000, we passed that test without, uh, without larger political violence. But, but if we have another test again and, and things continue to erode, I think those three risk factors Right, An, another closely contested election. If there further, if there's lots of passage of these laws that restrain voting rights and and and, and allow partisan officials to override local election officials, um, and if we see further uh, galvanization of racial and ethnic differences as, as as a primary political cleavage in America, I think all of those risk factors uh, would would put us in the in the same category as as other nations uh, in in a, in a way that we have kind of refused to believe. Uh, that, that we are until until recent years. Yeah. So just just to briefly summarize your point broadly, you still see both of the parties organized along ideological lines, with differences, you know, about things like abortion, things like what role the government should play in people's lives, and uh, this is you know different from parties that are organized primarily along things like race, which is the condition, one of the conditions that Barbara Walters identifies for civil war. So for now, we should be good, but you know, just stay tuned to see how things change, in other words. Yeah, so if you look at, if you look at the 2020 election and exit polls, uh, they, they show that, uh, that Donald Trump beat Joe Biden among white voters by 57 to 41, 58 to 41%. So that's a 17% difference. Um, if you look at any policy issue, those gaps widened to like 60 or 70%, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there was a racial gap, but, there, but it was not nearly as defining as the ideological lines. Um, and so that's, but, but this is something to continue to watch for. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's actually an interesting statistic. So there is a significant, um, you know, a significant gap between how the white voters and the um, other constituencies voted, but it's just not as significant. The majority of people are still voting along um, ideological lines. Interesting. Um, and so the, the last question I want to ask here, kind of getting to the, the meat of the matter. So when I'm reading about articles and listening to media on this subject, I find conversations often superficial in the sense that they focus on the possibility of civil war in the United States without seriously considering the solutions or preventative measures. So if America is 
currently on the path to civil war or potentially on a path to a civil war, what solutions are out there? What serious solutions are out there that can take it off that path? Yeah, no, I think let's go back to, to, to where we started. So what has made America through its, through its violent uh, and, and fractured existence hang together? Right. Sometimes by the merest of threats, but 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 throughout our history, we've 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 remained a nation like what and what are the ways that we can strengthen those those institutions. Right. So it's one of the things is is to ensure uh, that American institutions still are allowed to check each other. Right. That the courts play uh, the courts at the state and federal level can play a, a large role in uh, in in looking at the evidence. Right. Because you want to have a venue for people who are grieved about an election result to go to. Right. And, and the courts are set up to to do that and have played that role. And so you want to make sure that they have the ability to, to hear those. There's a, there's a potential there's a potential move that the Supreme Court may make that would disempower state courts to uh, to, to 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 intercede and, and to be involved in uh, in state election um regulations and, and that would be deeply damaging to that kind of check and balance. So you want to have all the institutions of state governments um, from courts to legislatures to governors to direct democracy, uh, it, you know, working together to 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 set up and to adjudicate elections. Right? Um, and then you also want, you know, if you go to the to the second factor, you want to ensure that um, that the electorate is as inclusive as possible, right? When people feel like they have a voice through elections, they are more, they are less likely to exert their voice uh, through political violence, right? So, so ensuring that, uh, <clears throat> you know, focusing on the laws at the state level that expand to all eligible voters, the, that right to vote and the actual logistic capability to vote, Right, I think will be something that will be that will make it less likely to to for 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 people to move beyond elections into other ways to to exert their voice. Um, and finally, ensuring that you know that the this thing that I think is a, is an important risk factor that we haven't talked a lot about because it hasn't been you know it hasn't been a threat, but ensuring the continued um, role of our military uh, in staying out of politics. You know, we saw um, we saw. Uh, Direct, you know, the secretary, the a bipartisan group of, of of secretaries of defense really take a strong a strong stand after the 2020 election uh, in in uh, you know what role the military needed to play uh, and making it clear uh, that <clears throat> that it should remain independent and and I think making sure that that norm uh, in American politics that is uh, that is kept kept us away from 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 military-led coups, uh, that will also be important to, to keep a continued eye on. Professor Kauser, thank you for a wonderful discussion, and uh, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond the Headlines. Thanks for having me. That was Professor Thad Kauser from the University of California, San Diego. Thank you for joining us on Beyond the Headlines. My name is Connor Fraser. The topic of today's episode is assessing the state of democracy and the risk it faces in the United States and Canada. Having spoken with Professor Kauser about events unfolding in the United States, we will next turn our attention back to this side of the border as my co-producer Annabelle McRae interviews Monk School graduate student Hilary Lawson. In the meantime, consider checking out our Twitter feed and sharing your thoughts at beyond underscore headlines. That's 
capital B Y O N D underscore headlines with a capital H. We post live tweets of the best quotes throughout the episode and would love to hear from you. Hilary Lawson is a second year graduate student in the Master of Global Affairs program at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. She is the recipient of a 2021-2022 SSHRC Canada Graduate Scholarship and is currently completing her thesis project on the topic of QAnon and other far-right conspiracy theories within the Canadian trucker convoy. Her graduate work has focused on countering far-right extremism, myths and disinformation, and human rights in the context of security and conflict challenges. She's the current co-editor-in-chief of Global Conversations, the Monk School's student newspaper. Hillary holds an honors bachelor's degree in social sciences with a specialization in conflict studies and human rights from the University of Ottawa. Before starting graduate school, she worked as a political staffer on Parliament Hill for five years. Canada is often thought of as being immune to the political phenomena of radicalism. Why do you think this is? I reject the idea that Canada is immune to radicalism, mainly because Canada is actually a net exporter of far-right movements. The movements don't attain the same level of reach or hype as I think they do in the States. But I certainly wouldn't say that we are immune. And I would even say that we are one of the hotbeds for far-right organizing, at least in the West, in North America. And I think just on a general scale, we're compared very often to the states. And the states were, of course, influenced by political movements there and like various kind of forces we share in common with them. And I think a lot of the time when we think about the far right, we look to the states and see the political conditions that they have there, which I think are heightened by the gun rights regime. And so I think I guess to answer your question, like perhaps there's this feeling that Canada is is somehow better or like doesn't have that issue because we're not seeing the same level of organization or the threat posed perhaps. But I would caution against thinking that we're immune. Yeah, certainly a different situation, but Canada does have a significant far-right presence. And I think one that is influenced by the states and is also unique to Canada and has kind of a distinctly Canadian flavor. So you've mentioned that there, there is this presence in Canada. Is this something that has been present for a really long time in Canada, or is it a relatively new phenomenon? I don't think it's new. Canada is a settler colonial state. Far-right forces have been present in Canada as long as Canada has existed. Since like the time of Sir John A. Macdonald, there have been militias with the like express intent of, you know, clearing the West for white settlers and oppressing Indigenous peoples and other racialized people with that goal in mind. So it's certainly not new. I'm from Hamilton and Hamilton had a significant KKK presence in the 30s and onward. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't really know about, but because we think of the KKK as like a uniquely American organization, but it has chapters here too. I do think that in the last decade or so, there has been a surge in far-right activity and also attention to the far-right. I think 
like if we're thinking about the way in which we pay attention to these types of movements, like post 9-11, we were the kind of security apparatus was very focused on jihadi terrorism because of 9-11 and the like, quote unquote, war on terror. And now we're seeing the media and kind of public discourse turn more towards focusing on the far right. I don't know if I can confidently say if that means that they are more prevalent than before. I would say certainly that I think a lot of groups have been emboldened by American movements, which in turn have been emboldened by the Trump presidency. But I do, I would say that there is certainly some increased activity and increased infiltration into to mainstream discourse, which is what I'm interested in and, and also like what concerns me. The fact that that we're seeing these movements become more mainstream and more platformed means that there's more resources devoted to countering them. But at the same time, it means that there are more people who are potentially becoming interested in those ideas. Do you think maybe the age of the internet, the growing popularity of social media and social networking sites, has that perhaps played a role in that possible presence increasing of the radical right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like anything, the internet has allowed geographically disparate communities and groups to organize and work together across barriers that were previously insurmountable. And it also allows people to amplify their message in ways that we haven't seen before. So yeah, certainly it's playing a role. And I think that's interesting to think about in the context of Canadian movements being influenced by American movements, because we're looking to our neighbors to the South and seeing cooperation and tactics sharing and just inspiration from American movements. A lot of the folks who were involved in the trucker convoy had mentioned that they were hoping to turn the convoy into the Canadian January 6th. And so I think that having been able to follow that movement in the States around January 6th, like to such a close degree, certainly was an inspiration for for the convoy and, and kind of the affiliated groups and movements. You mentioned that the far right in Canada is becoming increasingly mainstream. I was wondering if you could further discuss this and dive into some reasons that might be behind this phenomenon. I think as I mentioned, like there's the effect that increased kind of government and media and public attention towards these movements is facilitating their mainstreaming. I wouldn't go so far as to say as it's like the fault of those institutions for mainstreaming them, but certainly when you platform these types of ideas, it does introduce them into the public discourse in a way that it might not have were they to just be ignored. I also think that this is like a deeply turbulent time with COVID and various like geopolitical events that are going on right now and and like even going back to to 2016 Trump's election it's a time where i think we're experiencing a major shift in the ways that people think about and perceive the world and for some people that means that they look to or become vulnerable to narratives that demonize racialized people we're seeing like not just in Canada and in the west but we're 
seeing all across the world a rise of authoritarianism and democratic backsliding. And I think that speaks to the success of certain leaders in capitalizing on like crises by blaming these crises on marginalized groups rather than addressing the root causes of the issues. And so I think that in a time where there are increasing economic and social pressures on a lot of people to a degree that that we haven't seen in decades, I think there are groups like white supremacist groups and conspiracy theories that capitalize on that fear and uncertainty to direct people's anger and frustration towards, um, yeah, like racialized or marginalized groups rather than you know, the structures and institutions that create these conditions. I'm writing my thesis right now on the trucker convoy and the ways in which conspiracy theories like QAnon have permeated the discourse around the convoy. And one thing that kind of stuck out to me as I was researching and doing the the literature review around conspiracy theories is that conspiracy theories become more prevalent in times of great uncertainty, especially in the aftermath of major events like a terrorist attack or like a natural disaster. Specifically, I think in this context, I'm thinking about the pandemic. And in these times, people are looking for some sense of stability or some way to like make sense of this chaotic environment and for some people the rhetoric and the explanation for the world that's put forward by these far-right groups can be really appealing. So you've already touched on this a little bit. I'd love if you could dive a bit further into it. With regards to some contemporary events that have occurred in the United States such as the January 6th insurrection and the election of Donald Trump, these have represented, or at least us in Canada, I think almost a rise of this radical right in the United States. How has that rise in the United States impacted the rise or the mainstreaming of this culture in Canada? Yeah, I think that's something I think about that often. I don't know how easy it would be to quantify exactly how these movements interact with and and impact Canadian movements. Certainly, as I mentioned earlier, I think that that certainly emboldened a lot of far-right groups in Canada. And yeah, I think that there is information sharing between the those groups too. And so as these groups gain like a bigger profile, even if they're covered in the media in a pejorative way, it offers the opportunity for like other groups, potentially like copycat groups to look at their tactics, um, perhaps reach out to them, like engage with them on social media, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And and there's also like, I'm thinking of groups that explicitly collaborate with American far-right groups. So in the convoy, one of the organizers was a member of a group called Diagolon. Maybe you've heard of it, but it's a group that wants to establish a white nationalist state between Alaska and Florida, like essentially cutting across from west of the states, like in Alaska through Canada, all the way to Florida in a diagonal cross-cutting way, which is where their name comes from. And those groups are like that group is obviously a cross-border effort. And so I think there's explicit collaboration between some of these groups as well. You mentioned that part of your research for your thesis is looking at conspiracy theories. If you have looked into this, do these conspiracy theories typically at first gain momentum in the United States and sometimes later transcribe over to Canada? Or have there been cases in which these conspiracy theories have started in Canada? So I am particularly interested in QAnon, which of course is an is a American movement. Um, 
it's taken on sort of specific iteration in Canada. Um, Canada has its own like QAnon leaders and influencers now. Um, and they kind of target like specifically Canadian ideas and um, goals. With the other conspiracy theories, so for my thesis research, like I am looking at QAnon, but I'm also interested in kind of related conspiracy theories that fall under the far right umbrella. Um, so I'm also interested in like new world order type conspiracy theories and COVID-19 and, and vaccine conspiracy theories. The thing with conspiracy theories is that it's really hard to trace where they come from. Like with QAnon, there's kind of a clear source, which is the Q drops um, on, on like each chan and um, then kind of the subsequent movement, like it's linked to a specific like movement in the States. But uh, with others, like I'm also looking at um, COVID-19 and, and kind of vaccine conspiracy theories. And certainly those are influenced by um, like public discourse uh, from kind of all over the world, but definitely kind of have sprung up organically in Canada on their own. So like the idea that the pandemic is, is a hoax. One thing that I think is really interesting about conspiracy theories and, and especially what I have seen during COVID is that they seem to be merging more than um, has been observed previously. And I think that that's part of what we were discussing earlier in terms of like the role that the internet plays, but also like the pandemic has created spaces for people with different conspiracy beliefs to interact in a uh, like a, in in a um, in pursuit of common goals, so like QAnon supporters appeared at um, anti mandate rallies, even like last summer and the summer before, um, and like I was seeing and and other researchers were finding that like QAnon supporters were finding common ground with vaccine conspiracy theorists because they're both panicked over this idea of like children being harmed and so QAnon supporters who are concerned about like like child trafficking are going to these rallies meeting with vaccine um or like anti-vaxxers or conspiracy theorists who are concerned about like how the vaccine will impact children and they're finding common ground in that way and then also like in the online discourse having those discussions. So that's that's like a trend that I have been looking at um, during the pandemic. And I think we'll continue to see that. For sure, that's, that's, that's super interesting to see kind of how these groups collaborate across the borders. And yeah, they're not just strictly defined to those borderlines. You've mentioned your research on the truckers convoy. And at the beginning of 2022, many of us Canadians watched that form and make its way across Canada while even seeing them in the streets in Toronto along the way. What did the tracker convoy mean for the state of the radical right in Canada? That's a great question. I think that we are still seeing 
the impact of it play out. Um, some of the organizers are still waiting charges and I don't think that we're going to see the the kind of real longer term impacts of it for a while but one thing that I think the convoy did was demonstrate the organizational capacity of these groups um I mean we saw Canada Unity who was one of the main organizers and and the leaders involved with it who have previously been involved with other movements like Wexit and United We Roll, but they were able to successfully bring together organizers from many other movements under the far right umbrella in a way that I think almost everyone outside of that space underestimated. And so I think that shows us that they have a an extremely strong organizational capacity, which I think we can expect to see deployed again. I think that, of course, like with the arrests and the controversy around the crowdfunding campaign, like I think that there will be some people coming away from the convoy feeling disillusioned. But one thing that really concerns me is this idea that the convoy was ultimately about a protest against pandemic public health measures, but it attracted like far right groups, it attracted conspiracy theorists and all these other like bad actors. And that's not to say that everyone who supported the convoy was part of those groups, but I think that their collaboration on the occupation is going to bring them closer together. And I think it will bring some people into the fold, um, into the kind of far right space who had just joined the convoy because they were like tired of pandemic public health measures. And that's what really, I think the long-term impact is going to be. I think it, it will serve as kind of like a radicalizing moment for some people. And also, like, I think a reporter made this point during the convoy while it was still going on. And I thought it was really compelling, which was that, like, this was a huge networking opportunity for people. And um, it brought together, like, thousands of people from different groups and affiliations. And they're, even though, like, they were cleared through a police action, like, I think they will come away from it with strengthened connections with each other. Um, and that's what I am particularly concerned about. Um, you've mentioned that the, the strain of radical right in Canada almost differs from what is popular in the United States. Would you be able to further dive into what makes the radical right in Canada different? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what group you're talking about. Um, I've spent a lot of time looking at the QAnon Queen of Canada. Her name is Romana Digulo. She's like a QAnon influencer. She lives in Victoria. Um, and she has a Telegram chat or channel where she has 75,000 followers. 
I don't think all of them are Canadian. You can't really tell on Telegram, but I would say it's safe to, to say that a significant portion of those followers are Canadian. Um, I mean, I think a key difference between Canadian groups and American groups is the um, firearms question. So obviously in the States, like we have kind of a heightened threat scenario in which these groups can acquire and store fire, firearms a lot more easily than they can here. But I think in Canada, there still is obviously that threat. The reason that we know about the Queen of the QAnon Queen of Canada is because she was detained by the RCMP for um, encouraging her followers to take up arms against like anyone who's administering a vaccine to children. And one of her followers actually did threat, didn't like actually go through with it, but threatened to do so. Um, I think it was in Laval. And so like, I wouldn't dismiss that entirely. Um, I think one of the differences as well in Canada is that we have a much and had a much more fulsome response to the pandemic than a lot of places in the States did. And so the backlash that we're seeing is a lot more targeted towards like the vaccine mandates and lockdowns. Yeah, and, and I mean like there are groups in Canada that have specifically Canadian grievances. So like the, the some of the Albertan um, far-right groups are specifically interested in uh, like secession um, which is obviously like a, a particularly Canadian phenomenon absolutely kind of moving just into our, our final two questions I was wondering if taking our discussion into consideration you could give us your evaluation of the current state of democracy in Canada and where do you see democracy in Canada heading towards in the future pertaining to the radical right and its presence? I mean, I, I think that we're privileged to live in a place that um, has a, at least a stated commitment to upholding like democratic institutions. I do think, and, and I have kind of watched this with interest um, over the last couple of years that, um, one of the biggest challenges to this that we're going to see is that the Conservative Party of Canada at the federal level um, seems increasingly interested in and willing to um, entertain an increasingly uh, right-wing um, like bent. And I mean, it, this is not the first like the convoy wasn't the first time we saw this. Um, I used to work as a political staffer before I before I came to Monk. And um, even then there were some elements of the conservative party that were interested in and kind of moving towards a more populist and like radical right flavor of like conservatism. But I think that it, that has been really crystallized with the convoy. We saw Pierre Polyev, who um, is probably going to win the conservative leadership race, 
embraced the convoy with open arms. He's been really outspoken about the mandates and the pandemic public health measures. And I think that like when I first started working on the Hill in 2015, those voices and those opinions were like a more fringe element of the conservative party. And now they're being represented in the leadership. Um, and I think like Aaron O'Toole, who, I mean, I'm no fan of Aaron O'Toole, but I think that like he represented a more moderate uh, wing of the conservative party. We saw him get ousted like the moment that he refused to acknowledge the more radical elements. And so I think what that means for democratic integrity is that um, when you have the official opposition party uh, increasingly espousing this like very radical, very populist idea about what the country should look like. I think that's going to not only like embolden people who share those ideas, but also push our entire kind of democratic representation in a more right-wing direction. Um, and I, I mean, I would argue that that's the exact opposite of what we need right now. Like we coming out of the pandemic, we really need like a fulsome social services response to like the crisis of the pandemic and the climate crisis and all these other things that are, that are going on and the housing crisis. And um, I'm really concerned that this, uh, this move towards like these more radical right-wing positions is going to endanger our institution's capacity to respond to those issues in, in a comprehensive way. Once again, that was Hillary Lawson. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss the state of democracy and the risks it faces in Canada and the United States. Today's show was produced by Connor Fraser, Annabelle McRae, and Michaela Gill. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.